Hey, y'all, Cable here, and this week's podcast brought to you by Go Wild, the new social media app made for hunters, by hunters, and anglers, by the way. Uh, If you're tired of the hate that we experience on a regular basis on the normal social media platforms, then check out Go Wild. And here's something cool also. You can log time that you've invested listening to outdoor podcasts or hunting or fishing shows, and you can do that for my show right now. We're offering up, uh, we've partnered with Go Wild, We've got five Lone Star Beer camo dub seat coolers. And also, we've got a great grand prize as well, which is a DS4K trail camera from Stealth Cam, the best trail camera on the market, and 100 bucks to the Go Wild store. It's free. All you have to do, log some time. Say that you've listened to the Lone Star Outdoors show. Do it on the Go Wild app, and you could be a winner. Check it out. Go Wild. It just hit me. She's done with me Like she was this past Sunday Why am I pulling over On the shoulder With tears in my eyes Good morning, good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. If that one doesn't get a tear in your beer, I don't know what will. It was just a dog, Uh, one of my favorites from Mo Pitney, kicking things off for us on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith. Uh, That one goes out to my sweet girl, Belle, who is still with us. She turns eight, uh, actually, yesterday she turned eight. So uh, happy birthday to Belle, and uh, well wishes to all of your four-legged hunting buddies out there. We've got a great show lined up for you today. So you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old thermos, the one your granddad gave you, the green one. Probably says Stanley on it. It's probably still got mud caked on it from boat rides and duck blinds from the 2011 duck season. I know mine does. But anyway, pour yourself another cup because we are ready to rock and roll. And off the top today, we will be joined by Poco Cedillo. We're... Pretty well-known shark angler along the Texas coast who made national headlines two weeks ago with the catch of a 14-foot hammerhead shark that weighed well over 1,000 pounds. Unfortunately, the shark died, and the amount of hell and negativity that Poco received was completely unwarranted, and we're going to actually kind of dispel this nasty rumor out there about shark anglers because these land-based shark guys are doing more for shark conservation, in my opinion, than just about anyone else out there that isn't a research institute or organization. I mean, these are just regular old guys who are passionate about what they do. And uh, by tagging and releasing these sharks, um, they are providing a wealth of information on their behavior, their migration, um, their numbers. And, uh, and sharks are one of those mysterious creatures of the deep that we do not know a lot about compared to other species. So uh, Poco will be here. Uh, unfortunately, the fish did die, but all of the meat was donated. Uh, some other interesting stuff about that fish that we will get into uh, in just a bit, including its relationship with stingrays. Uh, kind of uh, an interesting dynamic uh, that Poco will discuss, uh, which he discovered when he was cleaning this fish. Uh, so that is coming up here in just a minute. Then uh, we'll spend uh, a couple segments with Texas A&M professor, Dr. Maria Estive-Gacent, 
who specializes in ticks. That's right. Uh, the Lone Star tick is a very popular tick, but in recent memory, humans have come to realize that this tick is responsible for a red meat allergy. If you're infected with a pathogen that it carries, uh, you could become allergic to red meat. Can you imagine not being able to eat venison? That's no, that's no life for me. Uh, so we'll discuss the Lone Star Tick, this very real threat that it poses. And by the way, uh, don't let the name fool you. Yeah, Lone Star Tick, it, it's, uh, its range includes much of the eastern and southern United States. Uh, so we'll get into that as well as some other insect-borne diseases or threats um, that you need to be aware of and how to prevent them from affecting you. Uh, so that's coming up in a little bit. And then we'll round out the broadcast by checking in with uh, Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason. About 10 days ago, the Namibian Minister of uh, Environment and Tourism released a referendum banning the taking or the posting of trophy photos on social media of any animal that was harvested in Namibia, which is ironic because Namibia depends largely on safari dollars to support its economy. They have a robust wildlife population. Um, and it's, you know, it's a country that is very, let's just say forward thinking on conservation. And they understand that sustainable use hunting is necessary. So for them to come out and say, Hey, no more trophy photos on social media. And and you have to get permits to go hunt there. Uh, and so that's kind of how they're trying to control this. But the Professional Hunters Association of Namibia isn't standing for it. We'll find out exactly what Corey thinks about this issue and where he sees it going moving forward. Uh, because I, for one, am not ashamed. When I shoot an animal, I'm happy to post it on social media. I do it tastefully. I don't put my foot up on it and stand there like uh, you know doing the Heisman while I've, I'm gloating over this animal that I'm this great hunter that killed it. No, um, you got to do it tastefully. Get all that blood out of there, uh, this, that, and the other. But I'm all smiles, I tell you that much, because I'm happy when I take a nice trophy, a mature male of whatever species it is. Uh, so anyway, that's coming up at the bottom of the hour. That's what's on the docket for today. Let's see uh, what else here. Don't forget to keep sending in your monthly photo submissions for a chance to be your uh, July winner. We've got a Stealth Cam TS4K. And then uh, all of our winners from 2018 will square off at the end of the year for a chance to be our grand prize package winner, which includes a trophy access deer or black buck hunt down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. Uh, so if you want to come hunt access or black buck with me, win one of those monthly photo contests. And we'll get you entered into the photo of the year contest at the end of 2018. Um, also, we've got a quick giveaway we need to do here. Uh, I don't think we did one last week. So I've got a Yeti uh, tumbler. I think it's like the 32 ounce one. And uh, it says Park City's quail on it. It's from our friends over at uh, PCQ. Uh, they gave us the tumbler. So we will give it to uh, one of you guys or gals. Just uh, text in the word, let's just say quail. That's quail to 214-289-7807. If you're listening on uh, the podcast, email quail to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. We'll get all of you entered into a drawing, and one of you will win the Yeti Tumblr. All right, up next, it's the tale of the 14-foot hammerhead shark caught off the Texas coast. Shark angler Poco Sedia joins us right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. 
Hey, hey, all you waterfowl junkies out there. Cable here for TX Duck Blinds. Highly durable and highly mobile customized duck blinds built by duck hunters for duck hunters. Each blind is built from solid steel by professional welders and field tested before shipment. A duck season will come and go, but guess what? Your TX Duck Blind is built to last. Customize yours today by calling 817-965-1306. You can also find them at texasduckblinds.com or check them out on Instagram and Facebook at TX Duck Blinds. The Granddaddy of All Hunting Shows returns to Houston. The 2018 Hunters Extravaganza, August 3rd through the 5th at the NRG Center. Meet Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson and Michael Waddell and T-Bone from Bone Collectors. Bring the kids and see Gator Country's huge live alligators and the best bucks taken in our annual deer competition. Check out the latest gadgets and gear. Buy direct from the manufacturers and save. The 2018 Hunters Extravaganza, August 3rd through the 5th at the NRG Center. Get your tickets now at Hunter'sExtravaganza.com. Hey, y'all, Cable here for Go Wild, the new social media app that is a friendly place for hunters and anglers alike. Here's what you do right now. You go over to Go Wild, you listen to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, which you're doing right now, and now you get credit for listening to the show because you can actually log the time that you spent listening to my show or, or any other show for that matter. But if you log time, if you say you listen to our show, you're entered to win one of five Lone Star Beer camo coolers, and then a grand prize, we're going to be giving away a Stealth Cam DS4K trail camera. So go to the Go Wild app, log in, and then log your time listening to the show, and you could be a winner. How about that? I'll see you over at Go Wild. This is Ish Monroe. Like Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Tonight we're fishing off the jetty, counting stars until the dawn. Grab that fishing pole tighter, son I think you got a big one on Gable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show Powered by Dallas Safari Club Getting a little help there from our good friend Gary P. Nunn Redneck Riviera is the name of that one And we're about to actually head over to the Redneck Riviera Visit with uh, Poco Cedillo the angler who made national headlines a couple weeks ago when he landed a 14-foot hammerhead shark off the Texas coast. Uh, but before we dive into that catch of a lifetime, this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. You know what to do. If you're heading to the Redneck Riviera to wet some lines, grab a 12-pack on your way to the sand, and remember, drink responsibly. When you celebrate tight lines with an ice cold Lone Star beer. All right. Uh, well, let's go ahead and bring on our first guest today. He's taken uh, all sorts of criticism, almost really didn't want to do the interview until I assured Poco that I was on his side in his corner and wanted him to uh, to jump on and explain exactly what happened and what land-based shark fishing is really all about, uh, to which he agreed. So without further ado, uh, it is my pleasure to welcome longtime shark angler Poco Cedillo to the show. Everything's good, brother. Just uh, trying to make it through the week so I can get back out and do some more fishing. <laughs> right, on. <laughs> right on. How was the fishing this past weekend? Uh, it was actually kind of slow. Uh, we got picked up on one big bait. Uh, didn't no hookup or nothing, but uh, we did land a, a monster stingray. It measured 56 inches across. 
Wow. Uh, one of the biggest ones I've ever seen in my life. But uh, other than that, it was kind of slow for us. I did hear a few good fish caught, though, so mm. uh, waiting to see those those reports. Well, congrats on the recent catch of a lifetime. I can't uh, – I mean, it's been all over social media, and, and from the first time I saw it, I, I can say that I've never seen a hammerhead that big. <laughs> yeah, that makes two of us. <laughs> oh, my gosh, dude. So give us the dimensions of this. I imagine it was a female. Yes, sir. It was a female. Uh, she totaled out at 168 inches, which is 14 foot exactly. Uh, girth uh, was 78 inches, and uh, fork length was uh, 135. So if you use uh, IGFA uh, measuring system, it uh, should have weighed in at around 1,026 pounds. Goodness gracious. And so is, yes, is that a new state record? I imagine it is. Well, uh, surprisingly, uh, it 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 would have uh, it would have gone head to head with the state record. The state record was brought in a couple of years ago out of Galveston. A couple of gentlemen caught it offshore, uh-huh. and they brought it in solely for that reason because they knew that it was going to break a record, and they did. And that uh, was a thousand thirty three. Okay, and, yeah, I'm uh, sure we so, had them on the show. Actually, I remember that conversation. Yeah. Yes, sir. So mine was uh, according to measurements should have been around thousand twenty six. Uh, give or take, who knows? I might have beat it, might have not beat it, but uh, it was it was it would have gotten pretty close. But uh, I mean, we weren't uh, we weren't worried about no records or nothing, man. We were just trying to get it uh, released and work out, so we went ahead and salvaged the meat. Well, so that, going back to that other one, I, now I, I certainly remember it because they were fishing in that offshore tournament. You have to bring the fish in dead to weigh it. Uh, oh, okay. For, for those tournaments, which is a far cry from from what you guys do, uh, land-based shark fishermen. Part of the beauty for you guys is actually the release. Yes, sir. That's that's really why we why we do it. Uh, we to us it's a big challenge to get them uh, caught and uh, take all the official measurements and tagged and release them. And uh, unfortunately, this one didn't work out quite like we had planned. Well, and I understand though that hammerheads this is just what I've been told. Their mortality rate is higher than than other species of sharks uh, after a fight like that. Yes, sir. Uh, and mainly it's because of just the stress level. Um, Do they fight you know, harder like than other sharks? Oh, they fight, they fight probably the hardest. Okay. Yes, sir. So it just wears their asses uh, out. Exactly. Yeah, they, they get worn out. And, um, you know, it's nothing. You know, many people say, well, why are you targeting hammers if you know that they stress out? Well, man, unfortunately, uh, I don't think hammerheads can read. Yeah. If I put a sign in, a sign and it says no hammerheads, you know they're still going to take the bait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you know, I'm not. Uh, you know, we we just go out there and we do our thing, and, and we just uh, you know hope for the bite, and that's, you know whatever's on the end of the line, we cannot control that, you know. But we, oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you know, I've had several conversations already with uh, a couple of the guys from the Heart uh, Heart Research Institute and uh, Center of Marine Science, and and uh, they they understand the uh, the heartburn that I've gotten, and um, they just said, you know, keep doing what you're doing. It's because of guys like you that, that you know, we are f- so much more advanced now on learning, you know, uh, more about these sharks. You know, you guys are tagging hundreds of uh, sharks a year, and uh, unfortunately, you know, some die, but you, you can't uh, quit doing what you're doing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Foco, I put a sign up around my, my deer feeder that says no hogs, but they don't listen. <laughs> so. Unfortunately, yeah, they, they don't know how to read either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, before we, we hear the details of the this catch, the spite, um, how long have you been pursuing sharks? Uh, a little over 20 years now. Oh, wow. Okay. And how has the sport changed? Because um, it sure seems like 
whether good or bad, it's getting a lot more publicity these days than it ever has before. Man, it's it's uh, land-based shark fishing has really exploded over the last five or six years. Uh, I mean, it's just um, you know, and a lot of it is because of social media, you know. And I'm I'm one to blame for that also. Uh, but we we like we like the uh, the exposure of uh, us doing what we're doing, you know. I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of people out there that just don't under, understand it. They think we're just doing it for pleasure, and yeah, it is fun. But uh, there's a goal behind it, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. What was the biggest fish that you had caught prior to this hammerhead? That happens to be exactly one month ago. I landed a 11-foot, 8-inch greater hammerhead, and we were able to get all the measurements on that one and tag it, and it was release safely. Oh, wow. Very cool. Yep. The folks in the, the sharking community, they know you uh, very well. You won, I, I know it's Texas' biggest shark fishing tournament. I don't know if it's the Gulf Coast's biggest, but Sharkathon is, is it a week long? It is uh, three days long. Three days long. Okay, so I actually went out on a Bob Hall Pier a couple of years ago with a buddy, and we just wanted to kind of soak in the, the sharking community down there. Um, and, I mean, that's where I first heard of Sharkathon. And, and some guys actually took us in because we didn't have the right equipment. We were just like, hey, let's go try to catch some sharks. And, we, you know, we took our biggest surf rods we had, and they just kind of laughed and said, here, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll take you under our wing and – Next thing I know, one of the guys is he he drives all the way back to his house, comes back with a big bag of bonito, like his prized bait, and spends the rest of the night, you know, trying to get us hooked up with a shark. And yeah. uh, it's crazy, you know, they have a guy jumping off the pier. I don't think they're supposed to do that, but jumping down to right. a kayak and then running the bait out like two miles into the pitch black abyss. I mean, talk yeah. about uh, being all alone, feeling eerie. You know, I'm sure. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, man. Yeah. So how do you guys get your baits out with the kayak? With a kayak, yes. Sir. Okay, and about how far do you typically take them out? Uh, anywhere between four and six hundred yards is a normal, um, and then uh, from there it just kind of depends on conditions. If uh, the the real pretty green water is out eight nine hundred yards, then that's where we're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but normally four to six hundred yards uh, is uh, about right. Okay. Oh, and I totally got off the rails there. So anyway, back to Sharkathon. You won in two thousand seventeen. So. You had a bull shark that went 96 inches, $20,000 check, a bunch of rods, other cool prizes. So, uh, I mean, obviously people know you as a, a very well-respected shark angler. Um, back to the bait. Y'all run them out. You said four to 600 yards. What is the the bait du jour? What do these sharks prefer over anything else? Hey, number one bait is um, uh, jackfish and stingrays, you know, uh, that, you know, counos included. Um, that Those are the two favorite baits. I mean, many people run out Bonita and black fins and all kinds of other baits, you know, that are uh, legal baits, but the jackfish and, and stingrays are the two number one baits. Okay. Is it cut bait, or do you just put a whole fish on there, or uh, just depends you know, on how big I it mean, is? Some, exactly. Uh, sometimes we'll use, you know, uh, half of a 20-pound jackfish, and uh, sometimes we'll use a, a whole 12-pound jackfish. Um, and the same thing goes for stingrays. I mean, it just depends on their size. You know, this past weekend we, we ran out a whole 20-pound stingray, and it got picked up. That's the one that, that got picked up, you know, by a big fish, but we were not able to get a hook in it. Okay. Um, so so talk about as far as your, your setup, rod, reel, what size line. I couldn't believe how big the, the rods were these guys had on the pier that night. I mean, it was uh, eye-opening on so many levels. Yeah. The tackle was the number one thing. I was like, "Good God, these are, these these reels are just insane." Yeah, there's a ton of money involved in in, uh, in land-based shark fishing, you know. And me and uh, and one of my uh, my 
fishing buddies, you know, earlier over lunch, we we were talking about that. We said, you know, it's it's crazy. You know, we we spent so much money on this stuff, and then uh, to to be able to do it to the best of uh, you know full potential, uh, mm-hmm. not being not being held back because of equipment, you know, and uh, and it's it's nuts. It's it's uh, pretty pretty pricey just for us to go out and and catch fish and release them, you know. Yeah. What? Uh, so to consist of, uh, what you were asking about my tackle, you know, uh, most of us use, uh, avid reels, uh, uh-huh. this part of the, this part of the world. Um, this one was caught on an 80 wide TRX and, um, most of our rods are jawbone rods, jaw, jawbone blanks made by Roy's Bean tackle. This one was on an 86, uh, Uh, line consists of, uh, anywhere between 150 pound braid to 250 pound braid. Wow. And, uh, a spool of that is not cheap by the way. No, no, sir. I mean, it, uh, filling those up, filling those reels up, cost you just as much as a reel did. Yeah, uh, I mean, I feel yeah. bad when I have to spend thirty bucks for some monofilament. You know, <laughs> <laughs> go catch a bass. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, these reels, you know, they they they're holding anywhere depending on the the pound, you know, pound of line. They're holding anywhere between sixteen hundred and twenty three hundred uh, yards worth of line. So yeah, at about uh, thirty cents a, a yard, you can do the math. Mm. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this fish took, uh, what you said a stingray? Yes, sir. It was about a, uh, about a 12 pound stingray. Okay. And did you know immediately that it was a hammerhead? I mean, did experience tell you that? Uh, yeah, uh, we, we all pretty much knew that, uh, it was a hammerhead. Um, after about five minutes, we knew it was a very large hammerhead. And, uh, an hour and 15 minutes later, we, we were able to lay our eyes on it and, uh, it, it proved it. And, uh, at that point, we knew we were dealing with something that uh, none of us had really ever dealt with before. I mean, it was uh, very, very massive, and uh, we, we, you know, like I said, you know, we on my uh, on my story, I said we we noticed it was weak, and we went to work really fast on it, you know, and I and I did post, you know, uh, four to five minutes time from the time we took it off, and really, honestly, that was just exaggeration. It was more like two to three minutes. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we all we did was take a a uh, uh, full length, got a couple of pictures, popped the hook out, and out out it went. And uh, at that point, it it uh, I don't know thirty five forty minutes later, it just wasn't happening. Um, she never moved, wasn't really breathing. Um, she just made no effort, and uh, we called it. You know, by then we were all beat up and yeah. tired ourselves, and we just you know it. I, I try to get people to understand you, you got a thousand pound you know fish, and you got current, and you got waves. Uh, it, it takes everything you have to keep that, that fish upright. Mm-hmm. And, um, it just, now how many guys were helping you? Uh, four of us. Okay. Right on. Yes, sir. So it was basically one on the tail, one on the dorsal fin and one on each tech fin, just trying to keep it into the current and try to, you know, try to get it to go. And, uh, it, it just, you know, we trying were to get all the water up. through its gills. And... Yeah. After 40 minutes, we were all giving up one at a, one at a time and, uh, we we called it and um, we we made the right call. Uh, once we pulled it out of the water, it never moved. Uh, to say that we made the bad call and and pulled out too early, no, it was it was not. Uh, but uh, we that's quickly this went part of the deal. I mean, whether you're a fly fisherman who feels bad whenever you know a lot of fly fishermen are catch and release trout guys. I'll still keep yes, a few sir. for now and then, but you know, but they try to release every one of them. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes they swallow the hook. Whatever. Sometimes yeah. you know just. Whatever the situation, it goes, it goes with uh, you know uh, the trophy trout fishermen, you know, bay in the bays, you know, they're all using uh, treble hooks on on big corky lures or or whatever, and and 
a lot of times those those trout will swallow a whole lure. And at that point, what do you do? Or it gets hooked deep in the gills and it's just bleeding everywhere. I mean, what do you do? I mean, that wasn't your intention, but it happened. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> uh, we almost lost, the, uh, caught a 29.5-inch uh, trout in Corpus Christi Bay. And, uh, I mean, we tried like hell. Finally, she swam off. But it was like right there where, oh, my God, we're going to kill this fish. Yep. And then you feel bad, and then you have to eat it. But uh, I imagine you guys got quite a few pounds of, of meat off of a you know thousand plus pound shark it was uh it was uh, we, we don't know for a, uh, for a fact exactly how much but we're we're saying uh very minimum 400 pounds and this was all donated it was every bit of it was donated so where does one donate that much meat to i don't even know well we we uh we knew of a couple places but we weren't certain and uh one of our guys, one of uh, the guys that was involved, Timmy, uh, he went ahead and left, cut his short, you know, his trip short, and went and got everything iced down and cooled down, and was able to get it to the Good Samaritan in Corpus, which is a homeless shelter, and uh, they took every bit of it. Wow, that's a that's a happy ending. Oh yeah, for sure. To, I mean, uh, I can't say it was a happy ending, but it sure made things feel a little bit better. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, you guys did the right thing there, and and I think that you guys get a bad rap as, as shark anglers because. People think that you're just out there killing all these fish. Well, uh, like you said, you guys tag hundreds of fish every year. And in my discussions with the, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Shark Specialist, um, the other are a vital part of, of shark conservation and research. So I think people don't – they fail to realize that uh, you guys play a big role in that as well. Well, yeah. I mean, everybody that, uh, that, that, that doesn't understand it, I mean, what they see is the bad, not the good. I mean, you you'll you'll tag you'll safely release and tag a hundred sharks, and this one died, and all of a sudden it's national news. You know, uh, just like uh, one one uh, reporter posted out of California, uh, fisherman Texas fisherman catches fourteen foot shark and kills it after pulling it out of the water. <laughs> right. I mean, well, that kind of wasn't the the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I know that's why you were a little gun shy about even doing this interview. You've taken a lot of crap on social media. He felt plenty of hate, uh, but that's that's why I wanted to have you on, is just to kind of explain to people, hey, this is this is the misconception versus yeah. the reality of what we're actually out there doing. Yes, sir. Um, one other thing I, I found interesting, I saw you post a follow-up picture of all of these spines that you'd pulled out of this hammerhead when you were cleaning it. Talk about that, because I, I thought well, that was a, a fascinating. That, that was very fascinating. I mean, none of us, uh, all four of us that, that were there have caught, you know, many, many sharks, and a lot of large sharks, and released a lot of them. And what we found while we were, you know, uh, salvaging the meat is, I mean, just stingray barb after stingray barb from the head all the way to the end of the tail. I mean, this thing was covered in stingray barbs. And honestly, I think there was still a lot more in there that we might have passed up or, or whatever, like around the gills and all that. We didn't uh -huh. pass one under that. But, um, the only thing we can figure out uh, is that, you know, as it was growing, these stingray bars were not moving, and the, and the body was just growing around them, obviously. And uh, because uh, several of them were near the spine, and if you think on this shark with the 78-inch girth uh, from the outside to to the spine, I mean, it was it was places it was a foot, you know, thick. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you think, well, how did that stingray bar get in there a foot? And that's what some people were also questioning, you know, is they're like, how, how, how were, were these things in there? And it's like, well, I, I don't know. I can't, I don't have the, the, the definite answer for Well, so that. these stingray are try, obviously trying to defend themselves from getting eaten. Exactly. 
But the, the main question was, wow, how did they get in there so deep? And yeah. the only thing we can come up with is over time, you know, it being five or six foot, seven foot, these stingrays, you know, were, were, were attacking it, you know, to defend themselves, and these barbs would stay in there, and then the shark just kept on growing and growing. <laughs> so to be honest with you, I think that is more, it happens more than we know, but the reason we don't know it is because we don't harvest very many of them at all. Yeah. So I, I think every every one of those dang sharks that we release has stingray barbs in them. We just don't know it. Yeah, there's still so little known about sharks in general. Um, but like going back to the, the, the biologist, uh, shark specialist, he told me that the Gulf Coast area, our shark populations are, are doing very well across oh, the board. Did. So it, it's, you know, it is what it is. Uh, the shark didn't make it. And it's not the end of the world. The meat was donated. And uh, I hope that you guys, and I know you will, just keep on doing what you're doing and, and raising awareness for, for shark fishing and conservation across the board. So I certainly appreciate you, man. Yeah, for sure, bud. If there's anything, if any other insight or anything you want to leave uh, for any aspiring shark anglers out there that are listening, uh, just open up the floor to you. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, get out there and, uh, and, and experience it. Don't don't let none of this that uh, this this bad you know media people you know trying to discourage you know us from doing what we're doing. Don't let none of that discourage you, man. Get out there, get your equipment, and and uh, do some research before you get out there. It, you know, get get knowledge on how to release a shark. You know, circle hooks are, are a good thing. Uh, they you know increase the survival rate. Uh, but get out there and have some fun, man. Get after it. I mean, there's plenty of sharks to be caught and. Uh, it's fun. Get involved with a research company. I mean, uh, and or a center, and it's a it's a good feeling when you tag a shark. It gets caught somewhere else by somebody else, and and that re- that data gets entered, and then you get a call and it says, "Hey, that shark you caught in January in uh, South Padre or Padre Island, whatever, it was caught off offshore 30 miles at a port of Cono, <laughs> and uh, it was uh, safely released again." You know, it's like, "Wow, that was awesome." Yeah. You know, so uh, it, it is a uh, it is a cool thing what we do. Absolutely. And I know you're talking from personal experience there, so that's uh, that's awesome. Well, hey, man, if you want to give your Instagram, I know uh, folks can follow along and uh, see your your sharking adventures there. Yes, sir. It's uh, Sharkman Poco. uh, I'll be uh, definitely posting a lot more here in the near future. All right, Poco. Well, hey, we appreciate it, man. Take care. Thank you, bud. All right, there he goes. The Sharkman Poco Cedillo. Like I said, it's certainly a shame that he experienced so much backlash because that shark died. Um, he thoroughly explained that's not what they're out there doing. Far from it. Uh, sometimes they don't make it. It's just the way that it goes. Uh, that segment of the presentation was brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Optics. Check out the new Pulsar Helion. It is the monocular that I take in my pack. Whether I'm uh, elk hunting in the mountains or trying to sneak into my bow stand under the cover of darkness the helion simply gives up whatever's out there and so you should check it out you can find it at pulsarnv.com save 20 percent off your order if you use my promo code lone star that's lone star at pulsarnv.com all right uh, up next we're going to get into the lone star tick if you haven't heard of this uh, little devil It causes a red meat allergy in human beings. I'm not joking. We discuss next with Dr. Maria Esteve Gassent from Texas A&M University. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Let me see you smile. We both know it's been too long. But get who's right or who's 
Hey y'all, Cable here for Three Curl Outfitters, and whether you want to bow hunt hogs or get after them with thermal imaging and night vision, under the cover of darkness, Three Curl has you covered. They've got the latest and greatest thermal imaging and night vision technology. They hunt unlimited, I mean, just thousands upon thousands of acres of ag fields, or if you're a bow hunter and you want to sit in a stand and wait for the hog to come to you, uh, they can do that as well. Check it out, threecurl.com to book your next hog hunt. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. Down at Stagnite at the Prairie Rose A covered band from 10 to close And my old man sitting right there next to me They got the ball game on the big TV Stagnite at the Prairie Rose, one of my favorites. That's brand new stuff from Mike and the Moon Pies, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith, Ryan Shotgun with you today. Thank you so much for tuning in, as I appreciate each and every one of you for being here. Uh, We've got a fascinating topic to get into here momentarily regarding a tick that, uh, if it bites you, could leave you with a red meat allergy, right? So... Can you imagine the irony? You're out there deer hunting, get bit by the Lone Star Tick, and instantly become allergic to venison. I can't think of anything worse, to be honest with you. But we will discuss that reality with Texas A&M Professor Dr. Maria Estive Gassent in just a second. But before we do that, this segment is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation, to get plugged in with this great group of folks who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, and of course, conservation, head over to biggame.org and check us out. Uh, We'd love to have you. Uh, All right. With that being said, let's go ahead and bring on our next guest here to uh, talk about some of the very real threats out there for both uh, hunters who take to the woods and our four-legged friends that go with us. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Maria Estive Gassent to the show. Thank you. So first of all, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your specialty? Um, I'm an infectious disease microbiologist. Uh, I'm a professor at Texas A&M University College of Veterinary Medicine, 
And the focus of my research is mainly ticks and tick-borne diseases, and in particular in Texas and the transboundary region. Okay. Perfect, because that's what we want to get into today. Okay, <laughs> so um, obviously you have plenty of experience dealing with ticks, uh, probably other parasites, and the potential health risks uh, that they can cause humans, and our pets for that matter. Um, what is the worst time of year for ticks? <laughs> In Texas? Yes. I would say it's year-round. Um, I ex- I would recommend people to take uh, precautions, mostly during uh, the spring and the fall months. Those are the months that you're going to have most ticks and more diversity of ticks active. Um, while in the summer, because of these wonderful temperatures that Texas has, um, they don't like to be as active, mostly during the daytime. Interesting. Now, most of these ticks will attach to humans by questing, is that correct? That is correct. And explain to us exactly what that is. What questing is? Uh-huh. Um, yes, so questing is a tick behavior, um, and what is what is simply is like they're looking for a host so they can attach to the host and get their blood meal. So normally they're questing with their legs extended. Uh, their forelegs are kind of extended while their uh, hind legs are kind of uh, holding on uh, pieces of grass or leaves. Um, and they're just uh, kind of waiting for a host to show up. And if the host show up, then they'll jump on that host. They kind of get attached with the fourth legs um, to that host. Um, they have different heights of questing behavior. Some of them like to quest very high. Some others like to quest very low. Uh, but the ultimate goal is to find some uh, warm or cold-blooded animal that they can use as a blood meal. Mm-hmm. Okay, now some of them do this by, like, hanging out on a piece of grass, you walk by it, and they attach to you. Yes. I think I've been sitting under a tree turkey hunting more times than not and had, I don't know, are ticks jumping on me from above? Sometimes there are some tick species that can't drop themselves. Uh So if they sense um, a higher concentration of CO2, change in temperature, then they will identify that as a potential warm-blooded animal that it's just hanging around, and they will just drop on you. But that's less of a questing, like a regular questing behavior. Mm -hmm. But, yes, that, that happens. Okay. Well, you know, anyone who's ever spent any time in the woods has likely been bitten by a tick at some point, and... Yeah, we've always heard Lyme disease this and that, and I know that Lyme disease is a bad deal, but I believe it's more common the farther north you go. It is more common, but it's not absent here in Texas. Okay. So about how many cases of Lyme disease do we get in Texas annually? Um, In Texas, reported that fulfilled the CDC reporting standards, uh, we have anything from... 40 or 50 cases to over 200 cases. Wow. It's very fluctuating. Yes. Mm. And those are the reported ones. Right. Okay. Well, one thing that I haven't heard of much about until recently is the Lone Star tick and the meat allergy that is associated with this specific tick, you know, if you're bitten and infected. So the first thing I've got to ask is why haven't we heard about this tick until, you know, the past couple of years here? I have no idea because the long star tick is very common here in the south. Uh, we it's widely distributed in Texas and they're extremely um, um, violent. They, the, the immature stages they don't feed in individuals. They go in like bulks. They always uh, go in groups, so they're questing in groups. They don't go one at a time. Huh. So they're quite. Uh, 
violence, if you put it that way. Um, and, and they're extremely common, and they transfer many different diseases. And, and as you were mentioning, lately there's been, it's been associated with these uh, intolerance to um, red meat. Yeah, which it looks like is some kind of allergy development that you uh, that the people who has been exposed to a tick bite by amblyomma uh, kind of um, develops over the time. And, and I did read that the lone star tick doesn't. It's not as the the bite doesn't hurt as much as some of the other ticks because I've been bitten by some ticks, like especially in Africa. And I mean, it left in, like a little infected area for almost a month. Um, it hurt. Uh, but I found it interesting that these ticks are more of like a silent carrier, and you're less likely to find them or feel them. Um, yes, they're they're not going to cause any irritation while they're attached to it, and they're pretty clean when they deattach from uh, from their host. There are other amblyomma species that very they they generate very severe bites, uh, like the the Gulf Coast uh, tick, the amblyomma maculatum. Um, that uh, induces very painful bites to horses, for example. Hmm. And when you try to remove that uh, tick from the horse, the horse is in extreme pain. Interesting. So, okay. But amblyomas, we don't know exactly why, probably the composition of their saliva. Uh, they leave a very clean bite. Hmm. Okay. And so <laughs> we obviously have had this tick. I mean, it's been around forever. It's very common, not just in Texas, but uh, the south and south um, eastern United States. Uh, common up and down the East Coast. Uh, like, characteristically, what does the physical appearance of this tick look like so we know what we're looking for? Um, so the most distinctive ones are the females. So the adult female will have a white spot on their dorsal part. So if you see a beautiful, round, um, reddish tick. I don't, um, I don't think I've ever seen a beautiful tick. <laughs> well, when you work with sticks, you start realizing how pretty they are <laughs> with all the ornamentations and their behaviors. Uh, but yes, uh, you'll see this uh, red, beautiful tick with a nice a white spot. That's why we call it the lone star huh. uh, on their back. That's a very characteristic of that tick. The females of that. Tick. I think I've had this tick on me before. I mean, I've, I've certainly had one with a white spot in the middle of its back. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so have we just now realized, I mean, there's there's no way that all of a sudden this is this tick is just causing a meat allergy in people that it bites. It's probably just one of those things where we haven't put two and two together. Probably. I've heard of these for many years now. Uh, probably in the, the last few years, this tick has been spreading. Uh, it's been moving up north. Uh-huh. Uh, so probably uh, it's been more in contact with human populations, and therefore we've seen more of these cases, and that's why uh, now everybody talks about it. But I know it's been around for quite a few sure. uh, years, and, and we knew about it, yes. And so what exactly does it do to the human body to make you reject red meat? It's not clearly studied yet, but it looks like um, the the allergy that we develop is to a sugar that is normally present in meat, in red meat. So for what I've been reading, my understanding is that when a tick bites a human, we get sensitized to that kind of sugar, probably because it's also part of the tick saliva, because the ticks feed on other animals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so probably in previous feeding processes, this tick might also acquire some of the animals, uh, sugars or proteins, and, and it might be part of their saliva. And that's how when you get exposed to the tick, you get exposed to the sugar, and then you get sensitized, and then your immune system starts going crazy. Mm. 
that was my understanding. It's not clear um, how that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it hasn't been fully described and characterized, but that's pretty much what it is. Well, there are documented cases where people have linked to the tick to this meat allergy. I mean, it is a real thing. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. It is a real thing. It is documented, and we know the uh, molecule to which we are getting uh, sensitized. Uh, how this whole process happens is not fully understood. Huh. Okay. Fascinating stuff. What a miserable life. I mean, if I couldn't eat red meat, jeez. <laughs> uh, I'd rather. I think I'd rather have Lyme disease. To be honest with you. I don't know. Because I'd I'd starve <laughs> to know. death, doctor, if I couldn't eat red meat. I mean, I'd I'd become an emaciated. Just I definitely would die for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, w- is there any treatment for this disease once you're infected? Uh, which disease? The Lyme disease. No, no, no. Or the the red meat allergy. Yes, the red meat allergy. Um. So I guess it's like all allergies. Um, if it's not too severe, you could try getting some uh, antihistaminics uh, if you want to eat your red meat. Uh, I'm pretty sure there there could be with like any other allergy that you could get uh, your allergy shots, uh, so you get better and better. So there's always treatments of that nature. Anything that has to do with allergies, we could um, help ourselves with the shots and mm-hmm. and and medication. Unless it's a severe um, allergy, then you're there's no cure. You just have to avoid um, that kind of food. Yeah. So once you've been bitten, how long does it take for you to become infected? I mean, if it just bites you and then you, you, if you did feel it or you saw it and you brushed it off, uh, would you still become infected or does it actually have to start feeding on you? Um, I would, I would say you, it would have to be feeding on you. So there's a clear exposure of your uh, self to the salivary uh, secretions. Uh-huh. Um, yes. And how long would it take? I believe it depends on the person. It depends on the time that that takes being um, feeding. Hmm. Um, we know that during the, the early stages of the feeding process, kind of a slow process. So there's a, a lot of things that the tick is doing to, to attach to the host. Really try to get depends. in there and get you good. Yeah. yeah. So it all depends. I would say days to two weeks probably. Uh-huh. Okay. So well, kind of start feeling something. Sure. Well, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's take a break, check for ticks, come back and talk about, uh, a few more of these these beautiful ticks and some of the other uh, diseases that they could carry. Okay. All right, all right. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit, a longtime sponsor of our show. And let me tell you about Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land, that's the one thing they aren't making any more of, folks. Uh, But everybody wants it, right? I know I do. So if you're at that point where you're ready to make that investment, Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their piece of Texas for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. All you have to do is go to LoneStarAgCredit.com and they'll get you sorted out. Up next, we continue talking tick-borne diseases with Dr. Maria Estive-Gacent right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Goodbye to you, baby. I'm glad we got to talk, but I'm faithful to my wife. I don't never break the law. I don't know where you're headed for, but I know where you've been. 
The granddaddy of all hunting shows returns to Houston. The 2018 Hunters Extravaganza, August 3rd through the 5th at the NRG Center. Meet Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson and Michael Waddell and T-Bone from Bone Collectors. Bring the kids and see Gator Country's huge live alligators and the best bucks taken in our annual deer competition. Check out the latest gadgets and gear. Buy direct from the manufacturers and save. The 2018 Hunters Extravaganza, August 3rd through the 5th at the NRG Center. Get your tickets now at Hunter'sExtravaganza.com. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The System is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Have you had the frustration of trying to mount your game camera to a T-post with zip ties or bailing wire, but the first time you check it, find it pointing at the ground? I have. My name is Art Greep with Gunny Art Products. I'm the inventor of T-Mate, the T-post game camera mount. T-Mate is a rugged steel bracket. Just attach your camera to it, slip it over a T-post, and latch it in place. T-Mate will end your zip tie and bailing wire frustration. Order yours today at tpostmount.com. That's tpostmount.com. That's a classic from Earl Thomas Conley, Fire and Smoke, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you. Thank you so much for tuning in today as we are talking ticks and all kinds of other inhospitable little creatures that you don't want biting you. And we're doing that with Dr. Maria Estive Gassent of Texas A&M University. But before we jump back into it, this segment of the presentation, proudly brought to you by First Light. Hey, if you're heading into the backcountry this fall, let's say you've got an, an early season archery elk tag, then you need to plan on layering up accordingly. It's going to be cold in the mornings. It's going to be hot in the middle of the day, and it's going to be cold in the evenings. It's really a beautiful time of year in the mountains, but you're going to want some merino wool. And I encourage you to check out First Light's revamped lineup of Arrow Wool. They've got anything and everything that you will need for that backcountry hunt. So do yourself a favor. Go to FirstLight.com. Check out the Arrow Wool lineup. All Merino Wool products. You can find it at FirstLight.com. First Light. Go farther. Stay longer. Well, uh, what do y'all say we dive back into it here with Dr. Maria Estive Gassent? Uh, we certainly appreciate you sticking around through the break, Doctor. Oh, thank you. We discussed the Lone Star Tick previously, uh, the red meat allergy that can become a uh, a real thing I mean, if you're unfortunate enough to become infected. Uh, let's talk about some of the other diseases that uh, ticks like to, uh, to share with us. Uh, obviously, we mentioned Lyme disease. But do tell us a little bit, I mean, what, how does Lyme disease affect uh, human? Um, so the Lyme disease um, pathogen is transmitted through the black leg ticks or the deer ticks. 
um, uh, the isolis scapularis tick, that's the scientific name. Um, the tick has to be uh, feeding on a human or a companion animal for anything between 24 to 48 hours. So there's enough time for this pathogen to go from the midgut of the tick to the host. Hmm. So you need to have this long exposure, really. Um, that's what we always recommend, that when you go out in the field, check yourself every day uh, yeah. to make sure that it's not long feeding. Oh, content. that's just negligence on your own part. If you oh, get, yeah. Oh, my gosh. But people won't do it, believe me. That's a long uh, time. Yes. Oh. People will only check, like, after they feel there's something odd on their leg or uh, their back that it's not oh, normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Once you feel that or you see that first tick, then it feels like ticks are just crawling on you nonstop. <laughs> Yes, then you get all this paranoia, right? Yeah, oh yeah, I get it every time, and uh, I hate those things. Uh, well, so that's Lyme disease, and it can be transmitted to our pets. It can be transmitted to the pets, yes. Okay, there's no dogs, horses can have Lyme disease. And once you're a carrier, it, it's it's stuck with you for the rest of your life. Hopefully not. So if you document that you had a, um, a tick bite. If you're fortunate enough to develop an erysema migrant rash, a bullseye rash, then it's recommended to go to your medical provider. And with all of those evidence, they should provide with an antibiotic treatment to make sure that you don't get fully infected, right, that you mm. are able to clear the infection. Uh, the problems come when people neglect going to the doctor or they feel like flu-like symptoms, like, okay, I'm sick, but then a few days later you feel better, and then you're like, I'm, I'm good, so I'm not going to the doctor. And then the pathogen uh, kind of spreads out through the body, and that's when it's a little more complicated to get rid of it, and that's when people get uh, extremely sick. Mm-hmm. Okay. And can it be fatal? It can be fatal, unfortunately. Uh, so one of the tissues... Well, we already know the red meat allergy is fatal. At least it would be for me. But, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the problem with Lyme disease is if it reaches the heart and establishes infection at the heart level, uh, then some uh, patients have developed some cardiac complications. You can have a heart uh, block and, of course, have a heart attack and die. There's been some cases reported, uh, people who just dropped dead hmm. and they had Lyme disease. Yeah. Wow. Non-diagnosed Lyme disease, though. How do we diagnose it in pets? Will they give us uh, some kind of physical sign that, that you know they don't they're not feeling you up will, the far? Yeah, probably the animal feels like lethargic. It has fever. Uh, it feels like it has pain in their joints and muscles. Uh, some of the dogs also develop a renal failure. Um, glomerulonephritis, so that's why the animals um, start becoming real sick. Um, the good news here in Texas is that my team has developed a really good test for Lyme disease and co-infections uh, for dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not using it for humans yet. Right. Uh, but if you're suspecting that the dog has some kind of uh, tick-borne pathogen, we recommend to send it to the Texas Veterinary Medical Diagnostic Lab and, and or ask for this test, uh, for the layer plex test. And that will help figuring out what kind of pathogen it is. And it can detect the Lyme disease. And there's another pathogen that we don't talk about much that is called a relapsing fever. Uh, and it's a, caused by a very similar organism. Um, so Lyme disease and relapsing fever can be confused. And what causes the, the fever? The relapsing fever is caused by another Borrelia pathogen, and it's transmitted by soft ticks. Oh, okay. 
And yeah. <laughs> soft ticks. It's, uh, so will, will I have seen these? Do they look similar to just regular ticks? Or? Um, the soft ticks are very difficult to see because they feed um, very fast. So that's the complete opposite to the Lyme disease. The Lyme disease takes anything between a day or two to get transmitted. Uh, the relapsing fever takes seconds to be transmitted because the bacteria is already in the salivary glands, and when the tick feeds, and the tick feeds for like seconds to minutes, and then they disappear. So they're very hard to see. Hmm. And do, are they about the same size or, or shape and color? Um, yeah, the only thing is that you don't see the mouth parts. The mouth parts are kind of at the bottom, and they're more like round. Huh. Um, and they look like more soft. Okay. Um, they, they're normally present in your case, burrows, things like that. I mean, we just need to burn them all with fire, don't we? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, then we... Then we I don't want to talk about your life's work like that. It's 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 a, an animal that I despise, but it, I, I'm certainly glad that someone like you is out there studying them, so that we know what we're up against and and how to to treat uh, to treat ourselves or our pets. Uh, that's my main concern is the dog, you know, because I can pick ticks off of me. I know how to look for them. Poor Belle, uh, if she gets bit, I mean, it, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, we always recommend to have full treatment for the pets. Because uh, at least we have them covered. Like we know we have colors, uh, oral medication that can prevent tick bites, but we always have to keep an eye on it, on it because um, all precautions <laughs> are sometimes not even enough. Yeah. We have to always keep an eye on, on those ticks, make sure we do inspections from us and for the pets as well. Yeah. And let me ask you this, um, as far as that is concerned. Uh, sorry, someone just came in the door. Uh, yeah, let me ask you this as far as that is concerned. Do those oral medications that, say, we give our dog a preventative, does it actually prevent the tick from biting the dog or prevent the uh, the dog from becoming infected? Because we know the collars are designed to, to just keep ticks and fleas off of the animal. Mm-hmm. So with the oral medication, the ticks need to feed Really? So because what happens is that the compound is in the blood of the dog, right? Uh-huh. And it's circulating there for a certain time. It's a month or three months. depends on the drug, right? Yeah. And then uh, the tick the has to start the feeding process. So what ends happening is some of these medications, will, the tick will kind of abort the, feel, the feeding process. Uh, okay. So they just stop and they will die. Uh, so some of them are acaricides, so they will kill the tick. If it's adults, they won't lay eggs. So they have different modes of action. But the idea is that, yes, the feeding process will start, but it might not finish. With that, we hope that it doesn't give enough time for these pathogens to be transmitted. I see. So we are controlling both the pathogen and the ticks. Okay. Now, are there any other uh, insects out there that we need to be aware of uh, in these warm weather months that could be carrying some kind of harmful disease or pathogen uh, that, you know, folks might not be aware of? Yeah. So besides ticks and mosquitoes... (laughs) We all know that mosquitoes are also horrible. We need to um, be aware of the kissing bugs. Uh, So the triatomina uh, bugs, they can uh, transmit Chagas disease to dogs and humans. Hmm. And studies done here in Texas have suggested that a lot of dogs um, get Chagas because they get beaten or they eat those bugs. (laughs) That also happens. Um, So I would be aware of all of those ectoparasites. And this is a, called a kissing bug? A kissing bug. What does this look like? It's like a long, 
um, it's a big insect. Um, you see, there's two different there's different groups. Some I'll have of to them Google just, a picture of this thing. Yeah, you will have to Google a picture. Well, I recognize it. Do you think? Um, yeah, it's okay. very easy to recognize. They're long and big, and some of them uh, on their um, abdomen have some uh, clear banding. All right, I'm um, looking at a picture of it. I definitely have seen these things. Yes, you've yeah. probably seen them. Some of them are just. In our course, they won't do anything. The only thing they eat is uh, pollen and nectar. Some others are blood feeders, and those are the ones that we have to worry about. Okay. And the, and the disease they carry is bad news? Is Chagas, yes. Yeah. Interesting. American Tipanosomiasis. Uh-huh. Wow, okay. So other than those, I mean, are there anything? I mean, it seems like everything out there, <laughs> the mosquitoes. We all know West Nile, some of the other nasty uh-huh. things. That, uh huh. And uh, hepatosone, uh, canis, which is a parasite that is also transmitted by ticks. Um, so I, I, I will make sure that everybody just pay attention to ectoparasites and insects because there's a lot of. Um, we, we just take them for granted. Oh, yeah, they're there. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we neglect paying attention to what they can transmit. And once they transmit these diseases, some of the consequences are really bad. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so as far as, like, using bug spray, I mean, that, uh, obviously that's a great idea. Uh, do you recommend, are there any other tips or tricks? Do you tuck your, your jeans into your boots? Does that help keep the ticks off of you? I would recommend all of that. Uh, use the um, uh, insect repellent year-round, uh, not just because it's spring or it's summer. I would recommend it all year because if it's not for mosquitoes, it's for ticks or other things, fleas, yeah. for example. Um, they're also bad anyways. <laughs> um, I recommend if you're a hunter, make sure that um, um, the, the pants are in the boots and you could you could also put some like uh, tape around it, and if you put it like uh, the sticky part out, uh, you can even catch them. Huh. <laughs> you can catch those sticks. Um, I would recommend treating dogs, putting collars. Um, there are also some uh, medicated clothing with uh, ivermectin, I believe, um, that has been approved for human use. So you could buy uh, the the I believe they have shirts and pants hmm. um, of that material. Because we can't, we don't have colors for humans, right? Right. Um, so we have to use any kind of uh, repellent uh, that we can that we can use, um, and checking manual checking check for for the ectoparasites. Right on. Okay. Well, awesome stuff, doctor. I certainly do appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on and and sharing some insight with us. Is there a, a uh, you know a website uh, with more information or any resource that you can point folks to? if they want to uh, find out a little bit more about these, uh, you know, tick-borne pathogens and diseases or any of the other things we've discussed today? Um, I recommend to visit the CDC website. Um, you can find a lot of information there about their distribution, the ticks that transmit, uh, the diseases, what to do, who to talk to. Um, uh, Texas A&M University, the entomology department, has also developed an app for identification of ticks on the go. So if you find a tick, you can take a picture and figure out what exactly it is. So that will give you an idea of what other diseases um, they can carry. And then burn it with fire. And then burn it. (laughs) Yeah, or send it to us. (laughs) All right, Doctor. Well, hey, thanks again. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Dr. Maria Estive-Gascent of the Texas A&M University System 
Fascinating stuff, I tell you what. Uh, I'm dead serious. If I became a victim of the Lone Star Tick, you might as well just old yeller my ass because I don't see any purpose in uh, living if you can't eat red meat because why would you hunt if you couldn't eat red meat, right? I mean, it's a catch-22. Part of who I am and what I do is because I eat what I kill. If you can't eat what you kill, yeah, it'd still be, I think it would still be fun, maybe? I don't know. But at that point, you're certainly missing way over half of the equation as to what it means to be a hunter. So, uh, gosh, man, I'd rather have Lyme disease, no doubt about it. (laughs) That segment of the presentation, by the way, was proudly brought to you by Horizon Firearms. Now, you're not going to blow up a tick with a Horizon Firearm, but you are going to shoot just about anything that a tick would feed on, whether that's a whitetail, a mule deer, elk, black bear, or you take it to Africa like I did. Whatever the case, Horizon Firearms will spec out your rifle exactly how you want it, caliber, barrel fluting, all of that. And they'll do it right there in College Station, Texas. They did it for me. They'll do it for you. Check them out at horizonfirearms.com. Up next, what happens when the prime minister of an African country largely dependent on U.S. dollars for trophy hunting decides to ban hunters from sharing trophy photos on social media? We discussed with DSC Executive Director Corey Mason after the break. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. But around here, baby, I learn you get what you can get. So if you're looking for love, honey, I'm Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club, Chris Ledoux, tougher than the rest. Bringing us back from break here, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris, our longtime presenting sponsors. More importantly, though, thanks to you for being here today. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be talking outdoors with you. Thank you for being here. I do appreciate it. We are about to tackle uh, a topic that, you know, I think it comes from a good place. I, I really do. But I, I think it was delivered in a completely um, ill-fated way. And I, earlier I said this was the Prime Minister of Namibia. Let me uh, 
retract that. It's actually the Minister of Environment and Tourism, the Honorable Pohamba Shafida. Uh, but anyway, uh, this guy basically said, hey, no more trophy photos from Namibia are allowed to be posted on social media. It doesn't matter if you have paid your hard-earned dollar, come to our country with legal permits and taken an animal, you are prohibited from posting that image on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, you name it. So <laughs> seems kind of counterintuitive for a country who garners a lot of their national income from big game and trophy hunting to to put this kind of uh, ban into effect. So joining me now to discuss exactly what this means and, and how it will play out, it is my pleasure to welcome back Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Cable. It's always great to visit with you. It is a pleasure. Uh, so, first of all, how has your summer been? And uh, tell us a little bit about your, your latest travels. Yes, yeah, summer's been great. Uh, we've been uh, back and forth, went across uh, the pond, went to uh, Spain for the uh, international uh, the CIC meeting. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a wonderful convention that uh, Dallas Fire Club needed to be present uh, for discussions for, so it was a good a good expenditure of time. Uh, most recently, spent about a week and a half in Washington D.C. Uh, two trips, back to back though. One was uh, a few days on the hill there, followed by our annual uh, event there that we have in D.C. One evening where we gather a lot of uh, folks from the hill, uh, policymakers as well, and get together and visit, uh, really discuss needs, etc. And then the other one, I went right back uh, for the IUCN uh, National Assembly meeting. So uh, it's been good, very productive summer. Awesome, awesome. Well, and you know, I just got back from Africa, so I, I, did, I do, and I'm officially jealous. Did a little traveling, and and there was one species I wanted to talk about, just from a conservation uh, standpoint, that I was I would say lucky enough to be able to hunt, and it's called a bontebuck, and it's a very close relative to a blessed buck, and actually, uh, these things were, I think, hunted to damn near extinction because of their close proximity to Cape Town, which uh, this is what my pH was telling me anyway. Um, and Cape Town was like a, you know, back in the early 1900s, a booming a city. And so they, this was like the easiest meat for them to acquire. And so they basically hunted them out. And then through the efforts of private landowners, they brought these bontebucks back. And uh, you have to still get a permit even today to, to hunt one. Oh, they're a beautiful animal. Yeah, they are. They are. But going back to the, you know, we have uh, private landowners in, in our state that have essentially saved uh, the orcs, uh, scimitar horned orcs from extinction. Um, so kind of, uh, it was cool just to hear that story and, and hear the, the, the conservation effort that, uh, is going on there by, by private landowners anyway. You know, South Africa is just a great example, uh, sort of it's an entirety of really wildlife populations that 50 years ago were nearly decimated, uh, as a whole. And then through, you know, really ownership, if you will, of those animals in the sense of people that have true, sincere concern for conservation of those animals have restored them in a little different model than North America, clearly, uh, but nonetheless have done so very successfully, and it's it's really something to be applauded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But anyway, what I really wanted to discuss today is uh, Namibia, which is a place that I know you've been. I have. Uh, it's a beautiful country. Tell me a little bit about it as far as what is different about it compared to where I've been in South Africa? 
You bet. You know, Africa as a whole, and one of the things that I would remind everyone is that, you know, Africa is a continent. Each one of these different countries that we'll talk about are independently ruled, if you will. Uh, and, and that's often mistaken, if you will. Uh, many of them have very successful models of wildlife conservation, each in their own unique way, like the, the efforts we were just talking about in South Africa. Uh, that said, I would probably say that Namibia is one of the most uh, progressive in the sense of conservation, you know, even as much as some of their parliamentary uh, efforts towards uh, looking towards specifically using words of conservation and things like that associated with uh, legislative terms and rules. Uh, and so they are very active on the conservation side. They play a, a global presence associated with the International Professional Hunters Association of Africa as well. Uh, and so they are a conservation, very specific uh, country, and I think this recent uh, really memo that came out of their minister's office is really a reflection of that. Mm-hmm. Which we're going to talk about uh, in just a second, but how important is trophy hunting to their economy? It, you know, you, it's really interesting to see Namibia. They are absolutely, uh, I wouldn't say totally dependent upon conservation hunting, but in rural areas, they are extremely dependent on it, recognizing that the dollars that come from uh, hunting tourism compared to photo tourism. Uh, is, is, is uh, you know, multiple times uh, more. And one of the benefits of it is Namibia has shown a good example of, you, know, you don't have to choose between one or the other, but really let's recognize the place that each one has. And they very specifically administer and self-rule themselves in a sense that it promotes conservation and the conservation through hunting model in a very, very practical and, and mindful way. Uh, and they're really a great model that many countries are really aspiring to try to reach kind of Namibia's level of standard. Hmm. Okay. Well, it's it's like on my short list, you know. I think a lot of people start with South Africa, and not that I won't continue to go to South Africa, but sure. uh, you want to experience something, or it, me personally, something a little more mysterious, you know, uh, a little more off the grid, which uh, I think Namibia is certainly that. Um, so if there's if this country, which is dependent, like you said, on big game hunting, sustainable use hunting, um, they realize that then what sense does it make for them to mandate to all of their PHs, all the safari companies, and, and any hunters that uh, you know get a permit to come hunt in Namibia, that they refrain from posting harvested animals on social media? Yeah, I think the, the minister's memo that went out is, is sort of a point of reflection, if you will, certainly to me, and what he's showing here, again, they're very progressive in the sense of conservation and realizing their dependence on hunting model for tourism and conservation of many really iconic species there, black rhino being you know one of many there that they're really known for in Namibia. But I think it really just reflects the sense of that they are trying to safeguard hunting as a as a conservation practice, as a hunt as a as a hunting tool. Uh, and although the channels and the mechanisms and the, the ultimate outcome of this, in my opinion, could have been better in the sense of stakeholder involvement and those sorts of things. I think on the surface it's a reflection of the particular ministry's uh, desire to maintain hunting in Namibia. Now there's many layers, if you will, behind that that we can unpack, but I think that's one of the first things on the surface that I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just reading uh, Craig Nias, uh, his article in Lone Star Outdoor News, and you know the headline is just, Namibia moves to stop social media hunting posts. And without diving further into it, then you could be like, well, man, what... Are they going to stop allowing trophy hunting like we've seen with uh, some of the other countries in Africa? Uh, so it's encouraging to hear you say that, uh, it, that they probably have the best interests of uh, sustainable use hunting at heart. 
and uh, just probably went about it the wrong way. That's exactly right. So there is no desire in any way to stop hunting in Namibia. Rather, this was their uh, the minister's attempt to safeguard that. In mm-hmm. the sense of, but unfortunately, you know, we, we do we, we did CC this, and we do know as well that the stakeholders were not involved with this. And so, as a result of this, you know, there was a gathering of the Namibia Professional Hunters Association uh, to meet with the minister uh, to his compliment. Uh, they met. Uh, it was a productive discussion in the sense of, you know, uh, all the stakeholders realizing that, that what hunters put out there in a sense of social media specifically is a reflection of the sport in its entirety, specifically if it is a distasteful type hunting photo or something that does not show respect to the animal or respect to whatever may be the, you know, the focal point of the photo. It speaks negatively to hunting as a whole, and that's how the outside of the world views it. Certainly that 80% or certainly the 20% on one end or 10% that we're not necessarily concerned about, but those in the middle that maybe haven't, uh, that are, they're, you know, they're supportive of hunting when they understand the role, et cetera. And so being mindful of that, um, the professional hunting organization reached out to the minister, had this meeting, uh, and have a follow-up meeting coming up in the near future. And so really the good report to come back with is the fact that associated with this, uh, basically, you know, if you will, the, uh, the desire or really the authority to control hunting permits that came out of the initial memo, that's been temporarily suspended. So then the hunting industry now that will take the lead is going back to meet within stakeholders in the hunting industry, which is happening next week then they will report back to the minister, and they have offered within NAFA to come back and, and basically propose some guidelines so that the hunting industry can continue to market in a very tasteful way, in a way that, mm-hmm. uh, that meets their needs as well. Uh, and probably I can see an output of that as well being something where they have some kind of recommendations to hunters as well to be mindful of the minister's desires, but yet not you know stifle the ability for the hunter to, to share some very uh, successful photos as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, shoot, I, I've actually hunted with, uh, elk hunted with a guy in Colorado, which just blew me away. But for a lot of people, th- that photo is what they want more so than uh, the trophy, the rack, or the, the hide. This guy has gone all over the world, hunted just about every species, and he doesn't have a single damn mount in his house. Not one. He's never brought one, one animal back. And he just has a photo album that he takes with him everywhere, and he'll show you all the animals he harvested. But he's like, if I don't, if I don't mount anything... Then I have more money to go hunt something else. <laughs> so there. Uh, but anyway, what you said about the, uh, you know, the professional hunters association there. These people are not idiots. They are very mindful of what they're putting out there. Um, Carl Van Seal, my PH from John X Safaris in South Africa. Let me tell you, when when we were we had a good day and we harvested an animal, it was like you better expect to be uncomfortable for the next hour. I'm going to ask you to lay down in this direction, hold this animal this way, because we're going to get the best picture. There's going to be no blood. The tracker, the tracker has a, a chamois, a little chamois towel, and a bottle of water he carries around to get to get the blood off of these things. I mean, it is it is a very meticulous process. And and Carl, and it, yeah, it's for marketing. You mentioned the word marketing. Yeah, it's marketing. But also for Carl and for his peers, they know that uh, that we're under attack. You know. And so for them, it's it's a matter of showing the respect to the animal, um, in a way that will not draw the the ire of, uh, let's just say the the, the anti hunters or or the middle of the road folks who are even more important. Well, that's exactly right. And the ability to truly censor someone or prohibit them from from posting something, and then the consequences, you know, that's probably not something that could truly even be regulated. Sure. But I think the essence of what the minister was looking at is for people to number one be mindful 
of the reflection of their of their post, their photos in the in the form of a post to the outward world was really the essence of it. Again, now to, to just censor that completely, that's that's not a good mechanism. That's not a way a good way to go forward. But what it has done it makes it makes kind of sends a message that we're ashamed of what we do. It could absolutely. Yeah, which we're not. <laughs> exactly, we're not exactly, and so that's where I really applaud the professional hunting community there in Namibia proper, who were completely the appropriate ones to take the lead in this. They will come back with some very reasonable guidelines that doesn't prohibit the hunter, allows marketing, et cetera, but still at the same time recognizing what the minister is trying to accomplish. So I'm I'm quite certain this will land in a good place, but I think it is sort of a wake-up call for many people for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, in you know, a couple of years ago, we were never even having this conversation about trophy photos. You know, we just, as a hunting community, we just took them and then posted them. And and I was even talking about this on the show last week. You know, I uh, I used to just throw a deer in the, on the tailgate or a strap of ducks and uh, stand there with the buddies. And we never cleaned the blood up, never did anything. We didn't think anything about it. But with social media, uh, now those photos are not just for you and your buddies. Everyone sees them. And That's so right. we've had to adapt as a as a hunting community. And once the picture's out there, it's out there forever. You know? Yeah. So, right. <laughs> Well, cool. Well, I, I wanted to just uh, touch base, Corey, and, and I knew that you would have all the information at hand, so I appreciate you coming on and, and breaking it down for us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. We'll stay tuned, and I'll keep you informed as where it heads, but uh, I'm quite confident between NAFA and where we'll go that it'll land in a good place. I am as well. Well, hey, I certainly appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Cable. All right. Our good friend and Dallas Safari Club Executive Director, Corey Mason, on... Uh, some ill-advised decision-making, let's just say, coming out of uh, Namibia, a country whose economy, like Corey said, uh, is largely dependent on trophy hunting. So if it pays, it stays. And if you want folks to keep coming, mm, you probably need to butt out of their business. Not going to lie. That segment of the presentation by the way, was brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy by good friends Josh and Becky Gunther. Uh, they've been taking care of me for, good gosh, uh, eight years now, I think. They've been doing all of my trophy uh, taxidermy work. They'll do the same for you. They answer the phone when I call. They do amazing work, and they offer a fast turnaround time. They're based out of Marion, Texas. Also have a shop in San Antonio. Check them out at gr8mounts.com. Just looking at the clock here. Unfortunately, it's that time. Got to go. Got to get out of here. Uh, thanks to all of our guests today, Corey Mason of Dallas Safari Club, also Dr. Maria Estive Gassent of Texas A&M University, and uh, Poco Cedillo, a longtime shark angler. <laughs> Certainly was a, a, a pleasure to hear him talk about catching that 14-foot hammerhead. We will do it again, same time, same place next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, listeners, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. There lies a heart unbroken the dark where love still grows. So follow the road that make you feel old and brand new. Remain kind yet aware of the signs